few weeks back, we, uh, we talked about Romans 6. And uh, Paul's statement that we died to sin. Paul maintained that uh, when we were placed into Christ, when we were identified with Him, we died to sin. And we tussled with that difficult phrase and its meaning. I tried to explain then that when Paul says we died to sin, he, he does not mean that sin is no longer relevant. He's not saying that sin doesn't sometimes get us, conquer us, and control us. He's not saying that we don't have a sin nature, a proclivity, a tendency towards sin. All those things are contrary to our experience. What he is saying is that we died to the old lifestyle of sin. There was a time in our life when we could sin with impunity. We could sin and, and justify it and defend it. Uh, or we sinned and we felt immense guilt. We carried the burden of that sin with us wherever we went. Or we lived with the penalty of sin, which is, which is death. That's all part of the old life. Paul says we died to that. Sin still influences, still impacts us greatly. But we're no longer governed by that old lifestyle of sin. We died to it. I use the illustration of two volumes. Uh, everyone is writing two volumes in their life, those of us that, that acknowledge Christ as Savior. There was the B.C. volume, Before Christ, that we wrote before our conversion, before our new birth. And we, we take that volume and we wrap it up in white paper or gray paper, brown paper, and we tie a string around it and we stick it in the closet. And we, we're not going to open that volume anymore. It's over. It's closed. Done. It's finished. Kaput. And then we begin to write in a new volume. If that volume is called B.C., this is A.D., Anno Domini. We're living in the acceptable year of the Lord now, as Isaiah would put it. New day has dawned. Each day is a new chapter of a new book that we're writing, which we can call the year of our Lord. This is after the new birth. Now, Paul says we died to all that in the past, and, and we're, we're living a new kind of life. That's Romans 6. In Romans 7, Paul says that when we were identified with Christ, when we were placed into him, we died to the law. Not only did we die to sin, but we died to the law. Now, Paul is speaking to a lot of people who felt that the law was the way to make your way to God. What God wanted was, was a bunch of law-abiding citizens who, who kept the law impeccably, and uh, by, by so doing, would gain his, his pleasure. But that's never been the case. The law was never intended to justify us, never intended to, to bring us into God's presence. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work. It didn't work then. It didn't work with Israel. It won't work now. And so what Paul is saying is that when we died, when we were buried, when we were raised with Christ, we put an end to this old life of trying to, trying to keep the law as a way of pleasing God. It's over. It's finished. It's done. There's a new way that he's going to spell out for us here. Now let's begin reading with verse 7. Well, what Paul does, uh, basically, is easily seen. It, the outline's very simple. Chapter is very difficult. Commentators disagree on the way to interpret this passage, and I'm not going to try to uh, sort it all out, explain it all to you, because it, it can't be done. There are too many difficult concepts here that we, we just will never understand until we sit down with Paul and ask him to explain himself. But the, the structure of the passage is very simple. He first establishes a principle in verse 2. And then in verses 2 and 3, he illustrates the principle. And then 4 through 6, he applies the principle. 
And then 7 through 13, he uses a personal example from his own life to show how the, how the principle works out for him uh, as an individual. Now, first he establishes the principle, chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Paul is writing to Jews who well understood the law, Jews who had become Christians. They were in the church in Rome. He's also writing to Gentiles who were well acquainted with the law because they were taught the Old Testament in church. They didn't have a New Testament. The only scripture they had was the Old Testament. So they were well versed in the law. They understood it. Now, Paul uses the law in different ways. Sometimes he uses it just as a principle. You'll do that in chapter 7. He says, I see a law at work in my members. That is a principle at work. Sometimes he's referring to the whole Old Testament. Sometimes he's referring to the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch. Sometimes he's referring to the Ten Commandments. I think here in this chapter, though, though we can't be certain, he's talking about the Ten Commandments because he quotes from, from, those, from that section of, of the greater law. And Paul says, I'm writing to people that know, know the law. Now, it, you know, it may be a gratuitous assumption to think that we know the law because we're not that well-versed in the Old Testament. But most of us know the Ten Commandments, or at least one or two of them, so we can understand what, what Paul is talking about. Now, Paul says the law, any law for that matter, only has jurisdiction over a person when they're alive. That makes sense. That's, that, that's, that's the principle. Regardless of how big a scoundrel a person has been through life, once he dies, the law can't touch him. You don't serve subpoenas on dead people. That's what Paul is saying. It's over. The law no, no longer governs that person. The law no, no longer condemns that person. The law no longer can put that person to death or put that person in prison. Their relationship to the law is over once they die. Now, that's the principle. It's very easily understood. Now, the illustration follows, and it com comes right out of domestic life. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Now, again, the illustration is, is patently clear. It's very easy to understand what, what Paul is saying. Uh, here's a woman who's married to a man, and the marriage may not be the greatest, but she's bound to him by law. But if a death takes place, she's set free from the law so she can marry someone else. As long as the death, uh, as long as no death has taken place, she's bound to this man. She cannot be joined to another. That would be adultery. But once a death occurs, in this case, the death of her husband, then she's free to marry someone else. Now, this is the an illustration of the principle that he establishes in verse 1, that the law only has jurisdiction over someone who's living. Once a death takes place, the law no longer governs, controls, condemns. Then he applies, and here's where we get into trouble, and here's where the commentators uh, have, have a difficult time explaining Paul because his application does not follow his illustration, doesn't follow logically. Now, I'm not going to take time to, to spell out the illogic of it. You can do that on your own. I mean, if, if you read it carefully, you'll, you'll see what you know, it doesn't quite follow. Paul says, so, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. And we say, whoa, wait a minute. In the illustration, it's the husband who dies. Uh, the wife is then free to marry someone else. Uh, and, and therefore, the woman ought to be us. We, she ought to represent us. But Paul is, is telling us in this verse that we died. So, you know, what? you have four elements in the illustration. You have two husbands, the law, and a woman. 
who died? Was it the woman who died? Was it the husband who died? It's impossible to tell because Paul doesn't, his application doesn't closely follow his illustration. So my brothers, he says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, uh, the flesh is the word that he uses. If, if you have an NIV, the footnote uh, indicates that, that that's the word. It's normally translated flesh. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, that is the law, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, all I'm going to say about this passage, because we could probably spend 10 or 15 minutes trying to understand what Paul is saying. All I want to say is that Paul is saying that a death has taken place. That's all. We don't need to try to figure out who died, because it, even Paul seems to be a bit unclear. The point is, a death took place. And when that death took place, it rendered the person who died free. They're no longer under the jurisdiction of, of the law. You understand that? Now, what Paul is saying is that, we, that when, we, when we were identified with Christ, when we were placed into Christ, when we began this new life, we no longer looked at the law the way we used to look at it. We used to look at it as a way of gaining God's acceptance. But we don't do that any, any longer because we recognize now that it doesn't work. You understand that? That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't work. The law doesn't change anyone's character. Now, as some of you are in, you know, we're in the throes of the new year now, and some of you have made a bunch of, bunch of resolutions. You ate too much over the Christmas holiday, and uh, you've decided you're going to go on a diet. So you resolved. You know, I'm going to go back to Weight Watchers or whatever, and I'm going to stay on a diet for the next six months, and I'm going to be a skinny mini when I get through with all of this. I bet you won't. I bet you won't. I know. I know. Because I make resolutions all the time. And I always break them. See? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. doesn't matter if you place yourself under the Ten Commandments, which God bestowed on Mount Sinai, or you put yourself under Ten Commandments that you make up. It doesn't make a bit of difference. You will you'll break your own rules, or you'll break God's rules, and it won't take long to break them. Because the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the material the law has to work with. You understand? The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. The law is good, but as Paul will say later, I'm sold out to sin. There's something wrong with me. I, a number of years ago, I, I was at one of the Young Life camps, and I, uh, uh, we were in a, in a barbecue, and having a barbecue, and, and uh, the cook, his name was Goldbrick. I'll never forget him. Uh, he, was, he was the, the cook at Star Ranch. In Colorado for years and years. I understand he's since retired, but he was barbecuing chicken. And he had halves of chicken on the grill. And, uh, oh, it smells so good. And we were all queued up, ready to get our chicken. And uh, uh, Goldbrick would, would stick a fork in the chicken, and the meat was so tender that the fork would just tear right through the meat. He was trying to turn the chicken over. He couldn't change the location or position of the chicken because there, there was a weakness in the flesh. And the fork would just tear right, right through the flesh. Couldn't lift it. Couldn't change it. 
And that's precisely what Paul is saying. In fact, he will say that in so many words in another place. The problem with the law is that it is weak through the flesh. It's a perfectly good instrument. It came down from God. It was mediated through angels to Moses. It was codified. It was written down. God didn't even take a chance that Moses might mistranslate. He wrote it himself with his, with his finger in the stone. And, he, and, he, and he, Moses took the Ten Commandments, written Ten Commandments, down to the bottom of the mountain, in, in case he might forget. He might get to the bottom and think, ooh, what was that ninth one? I can't remember. There's no question that the law was a perfect expression of the character of God. The law, and Paul will tell us later on, is good and holy and righteous and just. No problem with the law. The problem is the material that the law has to work with. No matter how willing the spirit may be, the flesh is weak. Now, you know what that's like. You've tried and tried and tried to reform yourself. You've tried to conform to some code. It might be the code of your fraternity. It might be the, just some social code that you have, just some personal ambition, that, and you can't do it. That's the problem. The material is bad. It's, it, 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 we, we, we just don't change very much. Now, let me illustrate. Uh, uh, my family is very musical. My mother was training to be a concert pianist when she, uh, when she met my father. Uh, she's a wonderful, was a wonderful pianist. I can still remember lying in bed at night. And she'd be running scales. She practiced all the time uh, until she was quite old. And uh, my sister is a, is a wonderful pianist. My father plays the piano, and he, he was the music director, minister of music for the First Presbyterian Church in Seattle for a while. He had this rich, deep baritone voice. I can still remember him walking around the house singing. And uh, everybody in our family has a lot of musical talent, with one exception. <laughs> when I was about 10 years of age, my mother decided she was going to uh, give me a musical education, so she... Uh, she sent me to Miss Gertrude. Uh, Gertrude Mandelstam was her name. Wonderful Jewish lady who taught piano in Dallas, Texas. She had been a concert pianist herself. Uh, she was considered to be the best piano teacher in the city of Dallas. My mother was going to make a pianist out of me. Uh, Miss, uh, uh, Miss Gertrude and I were locked in mortal combat for an entire year. And uh, finally, she threw up her hands in despair. Not even she could make a pianist out of me. The problem was not the teacher. She was the best in the city of Dallas. The problem was the material that she had to work with. I've had a year of piano instruction. I still can only find middle C. That's it. You see the problem? The law is good. It's holy. It's just. It's righteous. The problem is the material with which the law has to work. It's weak. It's impotent. It's inadequate. It's what Paul calls the flesh. That's what the law has to deal with. has to reckon with the flesh. Now, you have to understand what the flesh is. Uh, flesh, is, in the New Testament sense, is not the skin that covers our body. When the New Testament talks about the flesh, it's talking about our basic humanity. It's what we are as men and women apart from God. Now, sometimes flesh is used in a neutral sense, just to refer to our bodies and our souls, our material and immaterial parts. And in that sense, it doesn't have any moral connotation. For example, Hebrews says that Jesus was made in the likeness of human flesh. That is, he became a man. wasn't sinful, but he was like human flesh. He was composed of material and, and immaterial parts. 
But at other times, uh, flesh becomes, uh, becomes a, uh, something morally wrong. And when Paul uses it in that sense, he, what he means is this. When we try to act just out of our humanity, then it becomes an alien principle. That's what the flesh is in this, in this moral sense. It's man without God, man and woman trying to live their lives apart from God. And as Paul puts it later in this chapter, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. He says, the law is spiritual. The law will make a spiritual person out of you. It could, if there weren't something wrong with you. But, as he puts it, my flesh is very unspiritual. In other words, my flesh will never make a spiritual person out of me. Never. Never. Not in a thousand years. It doesn't matter how much I grit my teeth and clench my jaw and, and ball up my fists and determine that I'm going to do better. I find that I, I, I can't do it, can't do it. I, uh, that's why Paul later on says, wretched man that I am. Now we're into making people feel good, you know, this sort of the thing, you now you've got to have a better self-image, and I'm all for that. But we should not feel good about the fact that we have an old nature. And we still have the old nature that we inherited from Adam. We shouldn't feel good about that. We ought to be able to say, just as Paul said, wretched man or woman that I am. We ought to feel very good about the fact that we have an indwelling Christ who imparts to us his nature and his character and his power for life. That ought to make us feel very good. As a matter of fact, Paul puts these two ideas together at the end of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am. Thank God, he says, through, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's a way out, there's an answer. See. But we have to keep those two ideas in parallel. We should not feel good about our flesh. It is woefully inadequate. It is wretchedly sinful. It is despicable. It is to be despised. It will do almost anything. And we learn that from Romans 6. Sin begets sin. As Augustine put it, the punishment for sin is sin. We begin to sin. We find ourselves doing things we never thought we would do. That's our basic human nature. That's, that's why the law doesn't function well when it works in conjunction with our human nature. It's just good instrument, pure instrument. All it does is stir up sin, make us want to sin more, which is why Paul describes it the way, way he does in verse 5. When we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. I, I think Brian a couple of weeks ago mentioned the woman who... Uh, uh, came up to the front of an Anglican church talked to, uh, talking to the vicar and was upset because he read the Ten Commandments. And as she put it, I don't want you to do that because it puts so many bad ideas in young folks' minds. And that's what the law does. You, you read the law and it just makes you want to sin more. It's like a spoon that's inserted into a, a liquid that looks clear, but it has sediment at the bottom and it just stirs up all this sin. So applying the law to our lives just doesn't work. Making resolutions doesn't work, doesn't change us. There has to be another way. And that's precisely the point that Paul is making. We died to that old way of dealing with sin. There's a new way which Paul describes as being joined to another. Now we're going to talk about that in a moment. But let's go on and look first at Paul's uh, experience, a description of his own struggle with sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
Now, you can understand why you would say that if the law produces sinful behavior, if the result of joining the flesh and the law is what he calls fruit for death, then there must be something wrong with the law. It must be sinful. Paul says, God forbid. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. Ah, that tells us what the law is for. See, the purpose of the law was never, never to lead us to God in the sense that if we keep the law, then he's pleased with us. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. It was to tell us what is sinful. Uh, You may think of yourself as very handsome until you go into a bathroom where there's a very bright light and then you look in the mirror and you see all the flaws and you you see yourself as you really are. Uh, that's That's what the law does for us. As a matter of fact, James says that, that looking into the law is like looking into a mirror. You think you're a very handsome person indeed until you look in the mirror and you think, my goodness, I've got a big nose. Or I've got dirt all over my face. That's what the law does. Magnifies sin. You take a microscope and you look at the edge of a razor blade and you discover it looks more like a saw blade. The serrated edge. It isn't a fine edge at all. We think we're doing very well until the law comes along and puts its finger on specifics in our life and it shows us up, reveals us for what we are. Paul says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. That's uh, what Paul had said earlier, that it stirs up, it arouses sin. For apart from law, sin is dead. That is, without the light of the word, we're not aware of sin. So many things that we do because of our sinful nature seem natural. We don't see it as sin. But what Paul is saying is that, that... that the law, when the law comes, sin comes alive. It springs, springs into life. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. That is, when the commandment came home to Paul. He had it from the time he was a child. But when it finally dawned on him what the law really said, he, he died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, and, and incidentally the Old Testament just say that, it just it does say that, If you keep the law, you'll have life, but the point is you can't keep it, so you can't have life that way. If it were possible for you from the moment of birth to keep the law, it would be a life-giving thing, but no one ever does it. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, and the commandment, that is, the specific tenets of the law, such as thou shalt not covet. Um, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? Did the law put me to death? No. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, that's the purpose of the law, to show sin for what it is, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. 
Now, we read that and we say, oh, no, there goes Paul again. You know, he's in one of these convoluted arguments that no one can figure out. And it is difficult. And believe me, it gets worse before it gets better. Wait till we get into the last part of chapter 7. You think he's confusing here? You haven't seen anything yet. But let me tell you what I think Paul is saying. And let me, let me try to illustrate it from Paul's life. Okay. Paul was a pious Pharisee. And basically, he was a very good man. He says of himself that he was very upright. As to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, he said. Felt very good about himself. And one of the problems with trying to please God through keeping the law is that uh, it, it does some things to you. It makes you proud, for one thing. You become very self-righteous, stuffy, uptight. Secondly, you become very critical, very censorious of others. Uh, you, because, you, you know, you've got to find someone that, you, that you're doing a little better than. It's like the fellow in the temple that Jesus talked about when he prayed to himself. Jesus put that significantly. He prayed to himself, I thank you, Father, that I'm not like that fellow over there. The fellow over there happened to go home justified because he was counting on God to justify him, but the Pharisee was very self-righteous, very critical of others. And thirdly, people that are trying to be justified by the law are always very defensive. You can't tell them anything. You can't point out their sin because they always react to it. And that, Paul would say, that, 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 that's the way I am. Righteous, pious, upright, uptight, Pharisee. Well, one day he happened to be reading the law. He was a student of the law, and as he read through the Ten Commandments, he came to the Tenth Commandment, and it said, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet your, your neighbor's donkey or his ox. Those are all examples of, of, of Middle Bronze Age wealth. Those were the things that really mattered and counted in those days, in the 15th century B.C. And he, it suddenly dawned on him that his neighbor's wife was very desirable. Now, Paul was probably married. Uh, you had to be married to be a uh, Sadducee or to be uh, in the Sanhedrin. Uh... He compared his neighbor's wife with his wife. You know, I'd rather have my neighbor's wife. He wanted his neighbor's wife. He wanted his neighbor's uh, possessions, his snowmobile or whatever. Uh, he longed for these things. And it was so natural to want things that never occurred to him that was sin. And Paul says, suddenly it came home to me that to want something that belongs to someone else is sin. Now, that shall not covet is the bottom line of the Ten Commandments. And the reason it's so important is because that's the one that leads to all the others. That's why it's in there. It's put in there to kill you. To show you that you can't do it. Because you just can't stop wanting things. It's like Tolstoy's story about standing in a corner and not thinking of a white rabbit. And that's what you're going to do. And when, when you just, I'm not going to covet. And you just start coveting. And you see, that that's the way Paul handled this thing. He... He realized that he was a covetous man. Well, all I have to do is just gear up and grip my teeth and I won't covet anymore. And he found that, that, that the law was like that spoon that started stirring up all the sediment out of the bottom of Paul's life and he couldn't stop coveting. And that's why he said it killed me. Now, he doesn't mean that it killed him physically. It killed him existentially. He died. You know, the boredom, the guilt... The frustration, the hopelessness, the despair, all, all of that fell on Paul and, and he died. He 
could not keep the law. Paul says that's the purpose. That's the purpose of the law, to kill you. Did you realize that? That was the purpose of the law for Israel. It was never intended to bring salvation. It was to drive them to God so they'd receive grace from Him. Receive forgiveness. Receive power. And that's the purpose of the law for for us today. It's still today. Those of you that look back on your non-Christian days, often you came to Christ that way. You realized what what a terrible person you were. Couldn't stop yelling at your kids. Couldn't stop yelling at your husband. Couldn't deal with your lustful thoughts. Couldn't, couldn't stop reading pornography. Couldn't deal with your sexual impulses. And you were driven to Christ for forgiveness and for help. That's the purpose of the law. And it does that for Christians as well. It points out in fine detail the areas of need in our life so that we are driven to Christ. We are joined to Him. That's the only way to deal with our old nature. We still have a fallen, what theologians would call Adamic nature. That is the nature that we receive from Adam. Scripture teaches that and experience confirms it. I know what I'm like in the flesh. And, if, and, you know, and so do you. So do you. I don't have to tell you that. You know what you're like. And that's why we need Christ. And that's why Paul says we've died to that old life. All of that is gone. We don't, we don't have to be justified. That's not the way to change our behavior. That's not the way to straighten up our lives any longer. We've been joined to another. Now what does Paul mean? How do we change? Who or what is the change agent in our life? Well, very simply put, it's, it's the Lord Jesus who changes us. We cannot change ourselves. And the law cannot change us. Only Jesus can. It works like this. You, you, you begin to read the scriptures and it, and it puts its finger on some issue in your life. James says you look in the mirror and you see yourself for what you really are. You see that old nature. And you realize what it's like. It can't be changed. I, uh, part of my life was spent in Duncanville, Texas. I was um, in the 4-H club. I raised pigs. Um, my, I've mentioned it before. My one claim to fame is that I had a sow who had the heaviest litter of pigs in the state of Texas. She's in the Pig Hall of Fame. And I, I used to take this sow around and, and, and show her at local fairs at the State Fair of Texas. She was a famous pig. And uh, my sister and I would uh, go get her. She was like a pet. We fed her on a bottle from the time she was a piglet. And she just followed us around like a dog. So we'd, we'd go down to the barn and we'd bring her up to the house, get the hose out and the bucket and soap and water, and we'd, we'd scrub her down. She was a funny color. She was kind of a yellow color. And, and Duroc pigs are supposed to be sort of maroon wine color. And so we would dub... Uh, uh, cordovan polish, shoe polish all over and uh, rub it in well and buff her up and, oh she would just glisten and we'd trim her hooves and shine her hooves and, and uh, my mother would spray cologne on her she did really that was the prettiest pig you've ever seen and we'd take her to the fair and I would sleep with her in the, in the pig pen and then when the fair was over we'd bring her home 
and we turned her loose in her front yard because she always hung around the house. And do you know what she'd do? She would wander off to the feedlot, and she'd find the dirtiest, sloppiest water hole, mud hole in the pig pen. And she would wade out in the middle of that pig pen, and she would close her eyes, and she would fall over on her side. <laughs> and she would smile. She was in hog heaven. That didn't frustrate me because I, I know pigs. Uh, pigs have a pig nature. They love the slop. And I know myself. I have an old nature, and I love the mud hole. Oh, I love it. But you see, that's what, that's what the law, it, it can't cope with that nature. It can't change it. All the law can do is, is tell me that I'm, I'm a pig. <laughs> that's all. Points out the areas of disconformity in my life. What do I do then? Well, I take those to the Lord Jesus. And I, and I say, Lord, you have to change me. You have to deal with my temper. You have to deal with my love of privacy. You have to deal with my resentment when, when, you know, when the phone rings and I want to be alone. You have to deal with my tongue. You have, you, know, you, you have to change me. These are the things you have to deal with. I can't do it. And we, we put it then in his hands. And as Paul puts it in Galatians, we wait for righteousness. We wait for not like flipping a switch. doesn't occur overnight. Some of these habits are long-standing, deep-seated things that will harass us to the end of our days. We will struggle and we will fail. The Christian life is not a bed of roses. It is a fight. It is a struggle. It's full of pain and heartache from beginning to end. If we don't think it is, we, we are not facing life realistically. It is a fight. But there's hope ahead, you see. Our Lord is little by little conforming us to His image. He will not do the job completely until we stand before Him. In the meantime, we're forgiven, totally forgiven. He's infinitely gracious. We cannot out His grace. He continues to offer it to us to forgive us. Say, well, I did it again. And He says, you did what? <laughs> you did what? I've removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. It's over. It's forgotten. Now let's get on with the business of growing up. And we cling to him again. And we make a little more progress and a little more progress. And one of these days we're going to stand before him and the, the transformation will be immediate. And all of the habits and all of the things that we do to ourselves that are so, so uh, discouraging and so hurtful to ourselves and to others will go. They'll go. And we'll be like him. There's a song, I, I, I can't remember the title, but I remember from years back, which the writer talks about Jesus' rough and tender hands. I've, I've always loved that expression, his rough and tender hands. Put yourself in the Lord's hands, he's tender. He's a tender healer, gentle, he's gracious, he's forgiving, he's understanding, infinitely so. That's why Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, because I am meek and gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. As Isaiah put it, he, he will not crush 
a broken reed, he will not snuff out a smoking flax. Smallest faith he fans, encourages, brings it into brings it into full flame. That's our Lord. He's got those rough and gentle hands. So just put yourself in his hands. Let's pray. Father, we can say with Paul that we are indeed wretched men and women. We look back upon our lives and we see the things that we've done to ourselves and the things that we've done to others. And we can say indeed that these things killed us. We're filled with guilt. We're discouraged about the future. We're afraid that we will, that our life will simply be a repeat performance of the, la- of the past. But we thank you that, that that way of looking looking back is, uh, is no longer valid. We've died a death that, that enables us to turn our back on these attempts to try to be justified by self-effort or to try to sanctify ourselves, make ourselves more appealing, more pleasant by self-effort. We thank you that there's a new way. We've been joined to another, to a husband who loves us and who empowers us and who enables us and who forgives us and who keeps on caring regardless of our performance. We've never experienced in our own life unconditional love like that. We don't even know what it means. We have to believe you and trust you for it. We thank you that it's ours. And we thank you that there is the possibility of of change. That you are bringing us into line with your will for us. That your intentions are perfect and good. And and that you who have begun a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ. We believe that's true. We cling to it with all of our strength. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.